just is there anything? Is there any, is there one lesson you could you, you could impart from your knowledge of, of marriage? Is there apart from? I love being married. Getting a car and drive at high speed to the coast. <laughs> so you, you, you get all doughy, you get all doughy eyed around Nikki. Yeah, that's she's my wife. She's yeah. terrific, terrific. She's Harry terrific. Redknapp would say she's terrific. Steve, anything to impart from a marriage point of view? What, what for a happy, successful, long marriage? Well, no, no, because I, I I will be needing the advice myself at some point because I'm I'm not Steve's a married man. Oh, you're not? No, I just presumed you were. No, you look downtrodden and beaten. He's like Dean Gaffney. He's got a common law wife. I didn't really. <laughs> he's, he's a Catholic with kids. Who's wow, not I didn't know that. Steve. Oh, good. Sorry, I'm glad I, got I, I, to this. Are you a Catholic? Oh, sorry, I didn't yeah. realise. I didn't know that. Yeah. You keep that. You keep that light under your bushel, don't you? <laughs> well, you know, is, is it, do, do I have to carry it around as a sort of placard around my neck? I feel as though you should have told us. I think yeah. find that the bush was always burning. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's oh. like, like the final few days, though, for for you. Yeah. Before. You know, how, you, how, you, how, are you, how are you feeling? Well, I I feel fine. Do you think you're going to get cold feet? Um, I do have circulation issues. Okay. So, right. so medically. Cold feet might be an issue. I have a much more important question than whether you're looking forward to being married. What are the canapes? Oh, I can actually find out for you. I thought you should you should know this off by heart, really. At this uh, stage. No, they, they are listed and they will be on a document. So later, okay. I'll I'm, be sli- able to I'm slightly concerned that, uh, as somebody who is going to be responsible for him, one of two people who are going to be responsible mm. for him on the morning of his wedding. Your desire to know about the canapes has veered away from the question of, of cold feet a little bit too quickly for me to gauge exactly <laughs> where we are at that point. No, he gave a bantery response. He's what fine. I, I don't want him to sort of say, I'm just popping off to catch the second half of the Lions. Oh, yes. First test yes. that morning. Mm. Despite and it being an inferior you know, sport. And, well, yeah. and, that, and that maybe just will, you know, that will, will catch me out. And I think I genuinely think that's what he's doing. And suddenly it'll be my fault that he's disappeared off the floor. Well, no, I think yeah. you've, you've got one thing you've got to remember that should, should keep you in good stead. That'll keep you calm, and that is that we are all well aware that Hugh is batting way above his average. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if anyone's getting cold feet, mm. it isn't Hugh Ferris. Yeah. This is not a train you were allowed to leave the station without <laughs> yeah. being a passenger. He's not. Yeah. At no point is. Thank God he didn't say without being on it. That would have been <laughs> yeah. far too indelicate. He's yes. not going to wake up on the Saturday morning thinking, "Could I be doing better?" No. <laughs> No. Although someone might be. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, funny enough, she's just texted <laughs> to say, I'm leaving you. Yes. Can, can, can you speak to her mum about the children's menus, please? So it's still at this stage, things need to be sorted. Oh, talking of food. Oh, that's, that's a good uh, that's The pizza's ready. The pizzas. Forget the canapes. What's the story with the, the beard? Is that staying? Is that what's happening with It will that? be trimmed. I just haven't been on television for a few days, so I've let it Oh, I see. Food. But you're going to have some kind of facial fuzz. There will be a, a Hinchcliffe level of facial fuzz. Really? Oh, okay. Okay. You don't go clean. You've got a real sort of objection to being clean shaven. What, what do you think? Well, is there something? Is there something about your face that's sort of highlighted by? First of all, yes, the shape of my face is terrible, so I absolutely I must quite, not go. I think it's quite face shaped. <laughs> must not go uh, clean shaven. Uh, but also, and perhaps uh, more importantly, I look like I'm eight. That's just the same reason I I am lazy with shaving. Look far too young. Really? It's really annoying. I've yeah. never thought that about either of you. I smoked for many years to try myself, make myself look older, but it didn't work. Can somebody go and put the pizzas in, please? Uh, okay. um, I'll, I'm nearest, I'll will, go. You, will you do that for me? Uh, ten minutes on 200 degrees. Yep, thank you very much indeed. Okay. Everybody, uh, ten minutes, in which case we'll have to switch the pizzas over. Welcome to Set Piece Menu, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. This is part two of our summer spectacular, drip-fed to you on a weekly basis like a hit show on Netflix. A reminder that these shows are being recorded without us having the ability to respond to tweets and emails on the show itself, but don't worry, we'll be trying to keep in touch as best we can. The pizza, as you have just been informed, is being prepared, probably for consumption between maybe parts two and three, by me, Hugh Ferris, and these people with 
strong appetites. They are Rory Smith of the New York Times, who by the time you hear this will be a year older. That's true, yes. Happy birthday to me. Stephen Wyeth of BT and BBC Sport. And Andy Hinchcliffe of football. It's pretty true. Of all football. Yeah. Overarching. Myself and Pele, football. It's a big job. It's, you know, it's an overarching yeah. job description, isn't it? But I've got big shoulders, point, Steve. Yeah. I can carry it off. Carry on, Hugh. On our summer slew of shows, we are attempting to do something that uh, every good GCSE student should do. Taking a question and then dissecting it meaningfully into its constituent parts before then coming to a conclusion in the final paragraph. Yes, this is our version of Describe the Effects of the Great Depression on the People of the USA or Explain the Significance of World War II on the Dismantling of the British Empire. So in discussing what is English football, on last week's pod we talked about whether in fact it ever existed, whether it was a definition that we could apply to English football. I think we did it very satisfactorily, if everybody agrees. I made a mistake. You made a mistake? I misidentified Billy Wright, former Wolves captain and uh, wannabe FA ambassador to Brazil. So, so I apologise. Well remember that uh, Rory's talking about uh, an expedition that was mooted following mm. the 1950 World Cup um, that the FA suggested that wasn't necessarily an important thing to pursue. They didn't have the travel budget. <laughs> the, those, those per DMs. Oh, my goodness me. <laughs> so that was part one. This week on part two, we'll be asking how English football has changed and what has it lost or gained as a result of that change. I think the year 1992 may well be a year that we focus a great deal on. Yes, as I was, as I mentioned last time, and was sort of cut relatively short. Well, only because so, I have an overall arching narrative, and I want to make sure that we don't jump ahead. But of you, so you wanted to take responsibility for for picking out that defining point in, this, in yeah. history. Yes, credit, it is yeah. my idea. But Steve, if you'd like to, you know, add a little bit of flesh to that particularly. Uh, no, no, no. You see, he doesn't look very happy about that. Look at him; he's really you've upset him now. He cut me off. He did. Didn't go on, Steve. But no, you go on, Steve. But Steve go. Your point was absolutely right. Yes. 1992, the start you of the Premier League. just cut Steve off. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm very he much... cut me off to tell me I was correct. You last shot. <laughs> Not, this is nonsense. I'm Move very on. much teeing Steve up. Excellent. That, that 1992 does, is a watershed for all the people that people rightly get annoyed with people saying, oh, football started in 1992 and all these stupid, it's the seventh time in the Premier League this has happened. As though nothing happened before that. That is annoying. Yeah. Let's, not, let's not get that wrong. Sky do it a lot. Yes, I think Andy Hitchcliffe is particularly responsible for those what? egregious errors of historical context. Egregious? Yes. Egregious. Me? What, on, a, on, a, on a Monday on Sky Sports News as they're pouring over the, uh, the weekend's not me, Premier Steve. League action. Not me, Steve. He's more of a Wednesday. Get oh, back to the Premier League in 1990. Anyway. Carry on. Carry on. What are you saying? is legitimately a watershed for, for what we're talking about, for the idea of English football as an isolated system. 1992 is the start of the point at which it becomes more connected to the centres of knowledge around Western Europe, I would posit, Steve. Yeah, just, just that before that point, it was very, very insular, almost resistant to ideas. Then money came flooding into the game. Suddenly we had all-seater stadiums. There was uh, a, a move away, wasn't there, from perhaps the, the traditional football fan, the, the working-class man. It became much more open to, to a sort of broader spectrum of, of spectators and, and influences. And, and with money to spend, you know, suddenly the Premier League was able to, I suppose, been looking a little bit jealously at Italian football, which, you know, during the 1980s had sort of been absorbing because of the money that they had at their disposal to attract the best talent from all over Europe and, and perhaps it was viewed as saying well actually if we can start 
doing what the Italians were doing in the 1980s, in the 1990s, and, and bring in the very best players uh, from from all over the continent. And perhaps that you know that English football, the Premier, this this new version of English football, the Premier League will will be an immediate success. The at the risk of, I'm certainly not hijacking this episode as I did last time, but I have an idea for a follow-up book to Mr. Called Mrs. No, uh, called... <laughs> master. Uh, master. No, about 1992 and, and how much it changed. And I think just to make sure nobody steals the idea. Yeah, this, is, this, this is copyrighted. I already have a proposal ready in my head <laughs> that I need to get... Oh, oh, my agent listens to this. He's going to ask me to write it. <laughs> anyway, the... 1992, there's loads and loads of different stuff at play. So you have not just the start of the Premier League, but the start of the champion, the European Cup becoming the Champions League, which was inspired by uh, the fact that Napoli played Real Madrid in 1987 in the first round of the European Cup. And people looked at that and thought, this is a complete waste. We need to get these games later on in the tournament. So they mean something. You also have the drip feed. I think this is really important through the 80s of English players going abroad. Trevor Francis, Des Walker. Chinch obviously would have gone abroad had he been born 10 years sooner. Ian Rush. Ian Rush went abroad. Rush, he went in 87. Yeah. Yeah. David, David yeah. Platt, Aldridge, Platt, Gordon yeah. Cowens, Paul Rideout, who of course yes, you famously, famously played with absolutely, in, yes. the, in the 1995 FA Cup final. Yes, the, uh, which the I intended to win on my own. Yeah, he's got the goal, final. but you know. The Hinchcliffe final, yeah, as they call it. Known as, yeah. the, um, so you had all these players going abroad, and I think that, as Steve mentioned, that was, that was really important to... Um, Soonest went abroad, of course, as well. The Liam Brady, all these players, that I think opened England's eyes to. Two non Englishmen there. Well, Britain's yeah. eyes. Did you say. mention Steve Archibald? Steve Archibald, famously signed ahead of Hugo Sanchez by Terry Venables at Barcelona. Uh, the You suddenly had this idea, I think, that England became aware that it was losing talent. The, the football mm. league was losing talent to Spain and Italy, particularly, but Germany as well, Mark Hughes. There was a page in the Panini sticker album, Brits Abroad. Exactly. <laughs> the, <laughs> really? Yeah. And I think the, the, there was an element of, if England was um, part of this system, then it, it kind of, it, it could equally attract players as lose them. And that with, with the money that comes in from the Premier League, the middle classification, which I think is really important of football from 1992 onwards, that suddenly you did have this kind of slightly more international outlook, that England was, was one country among many rather than the country, which is how it seen yeah. itself before. So if, it's a big if, if the Premier League and the money hadn't come along, do, would you have seen a constant drain of English talent abroad? Is it a good job that the Premier League came along? Well, that depends on your perspective. Yes. But would you have seen, it, would you have seen well, a constant drain of talent? Is, yes. If English football has ever mm. travelled that well, I mean... We've named a few, but it wasn't like a huge number of English no. footballers who were going abroad before the Premier League era, and and ever since it's it, it's dwindled further, really, hasn't it? There's never really been a reputation for. Was well, that the finances that keep players? Yeah, there's an in this country, that, but, yeah. but those who have gone abroad have never sort of made a massive success of it, have they? Generally, no. It's it, but that's partly it's partly financial, as Chint says. It's partly cultural. I think that there's a, a you see it with places like Russia, funnily enough, where there isn't that same sense that you have to travel to be a success and I think that, that applies in places like England as well um, those are both important factors for the finance and the cultural thing but I think if there had been no Premier League to an extent yes I think that more English players would have gone abroad the other thing of course is that it may well have been that the Italians and the Spanish clubs were looking at them and thinking you're not good enough to play yeah, for it yeah. the, not at the Manchester City side of the late 1980s change obviously obviously not but yes I think that the Premier League had to happen because I think there were other other influences beyond football 
that demanded a, a different outlook. So it's even things like computer games. Later on, it's the internet and mm-hmm. the fact that, that foreign football, Gazetta Football Italia, that was first broadcast in 1992, that then becomes this doorway into, into foreign football that we'd never had before. The Champions League's arrival and the fact that that became a much bigger thing because the ban after Heysel had, had eroded. So there was this sudden need to catch up with... That was actually... The Heysel ban is really important in terms of keeping the football isolated. But that all that stuff is happening. You can't stop that happening. So you, English football, I think, would always have been... You maybe wouldn't have been... It wouldn't have been called the Premier League. It wouldn't necessarily have had the Sky deal. But... English football would always have become more international in the 90s because the world was becoming yeah, yeah, closer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, but mentally, why did we go from being you know, resistant to outside influence to suddenly being willing to spend untold sums of money to, to attract it? It's, it's a, it was quite a, must have been quite a big mental gear change. Is that not the 90s for you, though? Is that the, the time that this all happened? The 90s, we're coming out of the 80s, were, were things starting to boom a little bit as well? Was it all a bit more about glamour? And yeah. bit, if you have the money to spend, it's then saying, right, we'll sign Brazilian players. Is it a bit more about that in the and 90s glo- as well? globalised world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. But also just in the, the early 90s, there's kind of more, there's probably more cultural influences coming from abroad. It's even stupid things like this. is doesn't sound really dumb, but like pasta. So when I was a kid, we never ate pasta. No, no. You didn't, it wasn't like your base yeah. meal. Well, I'm, I think I remember my mum cooking it. She'd do a spag ball, but we didn't think of spaghetti bolognese being pasta. It was just spaghetti bolognese. In the 90s, you do get... This, this sounds really... Just got the image of your dad picking the bowl up and throwing it against the wall and saying, what's this foreign mark? That happened once. No way. Yeah. No anyway, way. Anyway, but it, and to people of a certain generation, this or you'll maybe, know this, maybe this will, just people in Yorkshire were a little bit slower. This was... It. Yeah, possibly. This was Leeds, so it wasn't at the cutting edge of modern development. I'm not going to pretend it was. But, and this, this is a subject that I can bore for England on, of which there are many. Pizza Express. Pizza Express is hugely culturally significant. And, it's, and all those Italian chain restaurants, Bella Italia, Bella, which was Bella Pasta, I think, originally. Mm-hmm. But I remember when Bella Pasta opened in Leeds on the Hedgerow. And it was this totally different world because it was, it was A, affordable. So it was like a, it was a tenner or whatever for a, for a meal out. But it was all this Italian food. We did, I didn't have pesto until I was about 15. And th- I think that's hugely significant. That in the 90s, there was this internationalization of British culture, which came at the same time as we were also n- not just having more access to it, but we were, it was maybe, yeah, it was glamorous, it was yeah. foreign, it was exotic. Yes, it was, exactly, yeah. And it, that, that, that same that thing happened a positive, in football. Yeah. Whereas before, it had been a negative. Yes. Yes. Don't you impinge upon our knowledge, our history, yeah. our game. And it all, like, there'd always been the Italian restaurants in London, and you'd go out, I mean, it wasn't Italian food, but it was British Italian food. But the, in the 90s, you got this sudden democratisation of it, that we, it was available to everybody. And the same thing happened with football, I think, that with, with one slight addendum, which is that 1992, Graham Taylor's team is embarrassed in the Euros. 1994, England don't, don't even qualify. And if you remember, after the 94 World Cup, in fact, Chinch, you'd have been... Where were you in 94? Where was Everton, Everton. Yes, I about was. to win the yes. FA Cup. Just about, we're a year away from that glorious, glorious day. So, in fact, you must have played with Daniel Amakachi. I did. Right. I did play with Daniel So, Amakachi's yes. a brilliant example of this. Yes, yeah. The 94 World Cup, no England, in the US, huge crowds, massive stadium, glamorous, Diana Ross and the penalty, all that business. Mm-hmm. And you get, in that summer, after the World Cup, this enormous influx of foreign players. Ah, okay. Huge numbers of foreign players, okay. Daniel Amakachi being one, yep. who'd starred at the World Cup. And I think the scouting was literally, they'd been on telly at the World Cup and looked quite good. So half of them were a disaster. Mm-hmm. But you end up with this, after 92 and 94, 92 the Premier League starts, England go out of the Euros, and suddenly it's 
okay, right, we, there's this exception that England are terrible at football. 94, they don't even qualify for the tournament. But everyone watches it, including the clubs, and they sign these huge raft of foreign players. But on Philippe Albert, Mark Hottiger, they're not great names. But it, and they doubled down in 96, like Karol yeah. Poborski, because that was in England Because it was in well, England, and so. suddenly it's like, oh my God, this world is, is exploding, that we've got all these, these, there's all these players, and there's Davos Shooter storing a chip at Hillsborough, and there's Luis Fido doing this and that and the other. So is it just the right time for the Premier League to start? Was that kind of, if it started in the mid-80s, it would have been a very different story, because culturally... Britain was a very different maybe wasn't ready, place. Yeah. So maybe yeah. it wasn't ready. Was it? Was it in, in a way the perfect storm for this all to happen? Suddenly football explodes. All these European players are coming in. The money's there to, to kind of supply this as well. It, was the timing absolutely spot on for the? I think Premier it League probably was. Yeah. I think it, it had to, it had to be that. But mm. what did it do to English football? As, as we talked about in the last show about it being a concept, did it dilute that sense of identity that English football had of itself? Did it redefine it for a modern age or did it just reinforce English football's sense that it was the best? And yeah. we still have it now, don't we? The Premier League is the best in the world. But surely, Rory's probably, you probably watch more football than I ever have, but there must have been, has football improved from 1992 onwards? Not necessarily the coverage and all that type of thing, but it has the game. Is it a better game to watch but th- this is, this than is it was? The, this is the thing about that people who lament with their rose-tinted spectacles on the, the, the English football that they miss is that they, they, they almost want an inferior version of football that we have now, don't they? they, they anyone who sort of wants to go back to those pre-Premier League years are effectively saying, I preferred football when it wasn't as good as it is now. Surely what we are currently watching in the top flight in England, whatever you, whether it's called the Premier League or Division One, is better than the product that was available, you know, in in the mid 1980s when yeah, you started yeah. playing. Well, surely what we're seeing now from the English game. I've just, by the way, excuse, I'm just going to eat whilst you make this point. The pizza, the pizza, the pizza, pizza has arrived. Try to all that, to, all, all Rory's talk about Italian food mm. and the the cultural significance of Pizza Express. And uh, we've got. <laughs> Who would have so, thought? Shall I talk for maybe 20, 30 seconds to give you a time to. Uh, how big a piece do I put in your mouth, Stephen? That's disgraceful behaviour. Anyway. I'm turning his mic off, don't mm. worry. Surely the English game is that combination of the, the great English or British traits of kind of we're incredibly fit, we run all day long, we keep going until the 95th minute, combined with the technique and the quality that the foreign players bring to the game as well. Surely isn't that what English football. Is now obviously it might not have been at the, at the when the Premier League first started. It didn't happen instantly, did it? It's and kind it, of each, it's happened over the each years. Each learning from the other. Yes. Well. So I, yeah, I think Chinch is absolutely right as always. Yeah. In that I think what happened is there's probably stages, and it's probably true. Again, more intelligent people than me would have to to dissect it, but I think it's probably true of any any immigration from one culture into another. So I think initially. English clubs went and signed foreign players that they thought would fit into English football. People like Philippe Albert, mm-hmm. who I think is, again, a hugely culturally resonant figure. He gets his second mention, which is Two mentions for, for Philippe Albert. What more do you want? Um, and then I think after that, <laughs> they, 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 there was then a process whereby it was foreigners had to fit in with English football. And then I think they went and got players who might not theoretically fit into English football, but they'd identified, they'd identified that by having that sort of player, you could have a competitive edge. Mm-hmm. And I think gen- gradually, that then starts to change what English football is. So you have room for, room for players. People like Zola, a, a, a number 10 who's about five feet tall, would never have fitted into English football. But because he's A, very talented, and B, 
redolent of that glamour of Italian football and C, does it, there was no one else like him in England that then has a brings with it a competitive advantage but in, at the same time starts to change what we think of as being necessary to, to thrive in English football when someone like Zola can, can be such a star English football has clearly changed is it, is it all changed for the better? Are we, in, terms of the, in terms of the football we get to watch unquestionably it's a significant improvement but there is, there, there is that large, still a large body of people who miss the old days so what is it that they miss it, it, about f- football pre-Premier League era? So you talk about the old days. What, what kind of, what well, kind of actually, football? Well, if, we, if we're taking 1992 as, as, the, point. as the, 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 the defining point in history, the, 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 you know, those that speak particularly passionately and that get particularly angry about records, you know, Premier League era records, which are made to sound like, you know, football history began in 1992. Are they missing perhaps a sense of community with their clubs? Are they, are they missing the working class element of, of that match day experience? Has football become more detached, you know, between supporter and club and player? The product has improved immeasurably, but has, has it lost part of its soul as a consequence? I think they miss elements of all of that, and some of the things that have been lost are incredibly sad. So there's, there's at least one Premier League club now who has appointed someone to help it connect with its local fans. That was completely unnecessary 30 years ago, because mm-hmm. that, clubs just did that. You didn't need to think about it. It was just part of what being a club was. So I think a lot of the kind of the mourning for what's been lost is related to off-field stuff, that sense of connection, that sense of community... I think there's elements of things like diving that we associate with foreigners, which is, is completely unfair, but is, is, is kind of a pervasive myth. Uh, the sense of fair play, perhaps, that England's always prided itself on. But a lot of it's off the pitch. Off, off-field stuff is important. Yeah, hugely well, important. If you're, if you're defining, you know, if you're defining football, the sport. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, enormously important. But I, I, I do think a lot of it is slightly rose-tinted and nostalgic. That It's interesting that the people who say, oh, you know, it's a shame football's like this, don't think about terraces that were streaked with urine and incredible violence and racism that was just as much a part of english football in the 70s and 80s as a sense of community but there are there are maybe not the urine but there are people that miss those elements the terror the the the, the terraces the, the intimidation the, yeah yeah there, there are people who miss that sense of that football wasn't like a theater and i think that's probably fair enough that it was it was a more primal experience than that a lot of people who are upset maybe with modern footballers, is it because of the finances and how much money they earn? Do they say, well, they can't have the passion for the game that we had maybe in the 70s and 80s because they're earning 150,000 quid a week? So if people see footballers earning that, so does it instantly say football cannot be the same because the on, players are earning that type of money? If I was on 150 grand a week, I'd be passionate about anything you want. <laughs> You'd be surprised. <laughs> Whatever you paid me for, I'd be passionate about. But it's, mm. it's the You wouldn't get the bus home with the fans, though, after. No, that's true. But the, the discrepancy between players earning £150,000 a week and ticket prices pricing out yeah, the yeah. working class that yeah. formed the massive majority of those who would be in their, their hats, their coats, in amongst whether it was racism or urine or a sense of community, um, it's the discrepancy that's, that is pulled apart the fan yes, absolutely. from football, which, which is understandable. But if we're trying to decide whether the changes in English football, uh, with air quotes, are for the better or for the worse... Steve's right to bring in the sense of community and the, the aspect of whether the club or the player can communicate with its fans and not just its fans globally, but its fans in that local community. But 
we mentioned at the end of the last show about how you were playing during this change. Mm. So before we talk about the kind of the tactical developments that came as a result of those outside influences and whether it changed your life, your footballing life for the better, what about that sense of community maybe dissipating as you got paid more? As, yeah, uh, frankly, possibly, you yeah. you did as, yeah. as your career went on. Mm. You, you got paid more and more. As it went, the, the transfer fees went up and by the end of your career, you were, you know, the... Premier League have been going for 10 years. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think when I first started, obviously, being Manchester born and bred, at the time I started playing for City, early 80s, when I first got into the team, 86, we used to go out to um, supporters club branch meetings. The club used to send players out to speak to fans because that was the way it had always been done at that time. And it's strange because I probably never really noticed that that had stopped happening, that the clubs were starting to get a little bit more, well, wait a minute, we don't want you saying the wrong thing, we're going to be a bit more protective. And it probably did come when the change started to happen and more money came into the game. Obviously, when I left the club, things changed. When you go to Everton or Sheffield Wednesday, it's not quite the same. I understand and I am passionate for the clubs that I play for and I understand the passion that the fans have for those clubs I do connect with that but I've never really been a football fan I've never paid to go and watch football when I was 10, 11, 12 years old I've always played the game so it is a very different point of view that I had but I do remember at City things were starting to change they weren't sending their players out into the community and they work very hard at all clubs try and work mm. very hard at it. and it has to be a big part of, of any club's future hasn't it that connection it has no, no, whether foreign money coming into clubs Chinese investors or from Abu Dhabi or whatever surely they have to work very hard no Man City work very hard to try and keep that connection but for a modern football club with the size that they are with the global presence that they want with the PR that they want can they can they have a connection to the, the people that support them or do they the, do the supporters just see the club as a, an alien form now they support it but it isn't the club that we had back in the in the early 80s but City, City are a good example because I always think they almost have two completely separate fan bases the, 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 the team that the, 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 those that supported the club before the money arrived and then obviously the the investment has meant that they need to broaden that fan base don't they so they're trying to attract you know where 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 Rory my eldest goes to school most of his mates at school support city now because they there's been that real push to to bring in a new new supporter base mm. the availability of tickets means that you know a dad can take his, his son to the match fairly easily, which isn't perhaps so possible, you know, down the road at Manchester United or even, you know, at Liverpool or Everton. And that also they need a global fan base as well, don't they? They need to be, you know, they need to be able to sell shirts mm-hmm. all over the world if they're going to compete with the already established. I mean, and Chelsea went through the same thing with the already established, you know, popular English clubs. And everything that, for example, Manchester City fans mocked Manchester United for having particularly during the 10 years prior to City having the takeover, your match day crowd isn't from Manchester, they're from Scandinavia on day trips, they're from Ireland, they're from as far as Southeast Asia. Those are exactly the things that Manchester City need to be able to attract, to be able to compete globally, yes, in terms of an intangible, they need to be a a brand that people recognise, but also financially, the way that you managed to go from level two to level one as being a, a club which has a turnover of half a billion instead of 300 million is to get the global fan base massively extended. So from that, there will be exactly what City fans mocked United for having, more and more foreign fans coming over for a match day experience. And actually, that is a sign of success just as much as it was a stick to beat Manchester United yeah. with for the from the years from 2000, 2010. But that's, that's a, and Steve brilliantly brought it up because Thank you, that, there is an element of English football that 
that we haven't touched on as much as we've been talking about the stylistic stuff, the tactical stuff, the makeup of the players, but the match day experience is a huge part of, of what, what English football is and how it would identify itself and define itself. And how the Premier League manages to sell itself to the rest of the world. Well, yeah, and the stadium. What, what the Premier League have done is they've leveraged that traditional English match day experience. But that itself has, again, probably between 1888 and 1988, which was kind of what we, that century, that first century of English football, the match day experience probably didn't differ hugely until maybe the very end mm. when you get hooliganism, you get the national front out on the road and you get the racism and it becomes hostile and unpleasant and that fans are persecuted, treated as, as the enemy within by Thatcher and you know, all that, that other stuff. But certainly until sort of 1970, it was pr- the match day experience would have been you'd have been eating the same food, you'd have been standing with the same type of people, it would have cost roughly the same amount of money relative to your wage as it had in 1888. It was basically the same thing. You then it becomes then becomes much less pleasant, and then in 1992 starts to become much more pleasant, and that's kind of how it happens. But again, we see this huge change in what what in what football's backdrop, which is how most of us consume football as fans, not as not as players. How it how it becomes quieter, much more expensive. Those things are obviously linked. I'd say that it's probably less. It's certainly less atmospheric. You, I've spoken to, I'm not going to name drop partners. I can't, but. You speak to foreign players and coaches who come to England, and one of the things they, they really look forward to is the is the atmosphere. They are invariably hugely disappointed, particularly if they've come from Germany. They are, are baffled by why people think the Premier League atmosphere is really good, because as far as they can tell, the grounds are completely silent. They're relatively small in most cases. Hugely expensive and quite chippy, to be honest. Don't really seem to like the fact that their team might lose occasionally. That match day experience of English football has changed, and I think within that, for all that you shouldn't nostalgicise and lionise the days of racism and and yeah, sort of riots and fighting. You know, obviously that 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 is. I wouldn't want to go back to that. I wouldn't want to go to football like that. But there has something has been lost in that match day experience, without a shadow of a doubt. That's not to say that it's the fault of foreign fans, because. You can be Chinese or Malaysian or Brazilian and come to Anfield or Old Trafford or the Emirates and know the songs and want to sing. It's because it's an older demographic. It's because it costs more money, so people expect to be entertained. And it, it feels much worse going to, spending 50, 50, 60 quid on a ticket and seeing your team play badly and lose than it does spending 10 quid on a ticket and seeing your team play badly and lose. So has football lost its edge? Has it been, it been sanitised? To an extent, probably, yeah. It's probably yeah. lost that. I think it's lost... I think there's an element of it's lost its soul. But, but is that Englishness you're losing? Is that what you're talking about? That edge, that that antagonism that we used to feel. Not the, the racism and hooliganism, all that type of stuff, but that feeling of tribalism within a, no, within a see, game. What's really interesting, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, but I think that's worse now than worse. it was. Again, if you take out the hooligan era, when it became physically dangerous to support mm. a football team in certain contexts, I think before that, Football wasn't as tribalistic. My dad, who was born a Leicester fan, used to go and watch Forest. Yes, yeah, we, yeah, we've yeah. spoken before about those those yeah. fans who would go to Highbury on the yeah. week that they couldn't go to White Hart Lane. So yeah, that that has the tribalism is gained a tribalism. It's it's become more for everything that was off-putting about the hooliganism and the racism. The off-putting part of it now is the 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 sense of tribalism, which has become almost non-negotiable. You you, you can't be a fan unless 
you conform to certain traits. Yeah, you've got to support your team yeah. and hate, like, like, absolutely yeah, exactly. hate it's like your big rivals. It's like passing the initiation yeah. test. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's even, uh, do you know what this is? And again, proving that I only have so, only have so so many thoughts, but did a column for a magazine, my final column for 442 magazine, mm. uh, which will be published at some point in the future, I don't know, about the fact that if you see, after a goal stored, have we talked about this before? Yes, I think we have. The yeah. reactions of fans. The reactions yeah, of fans, yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 The, there's, there's a lot of them celebrate, but there's a lot of them who turn to the away fans and swear at them. Why? It's because as that, that is the defining narrative of their day, the, of their experience. The pleasure comes from the, from the suffering of others. Yeah. And yeah. That's, that is something that is new in football. That is, within the last, that is a, a, bad, a bad effect, a bad consequence of whatever's happened in football in the last 30 years. Because it didn't used to be like that. The joy of your team winning was enough. But that's another factor of the... Of the, of the the more expensive it's become, the yeah. more you feel like you have a, a right to be, ha- you know, you in- it gives you a sense of entitlement, yeah. doesn't it? To behave mm. in whichever manner you feel is appropriate, whether that's to be infuriated that you're not being entertained enough, or if it's to abuse a player on the pitch, or if it's, you know, do you know what's part of my 50 quid? I'm going to make sure I have my two penneth with the supporters of the other club. Isn't that a bit like society, though? The, the guy driving his Range Rover looking out of his window, someone driving a Mini. As if to say, I'm better than you. Mini's very expensive, though. Change. They are. They're not as expensive as a Range Rover. But you know what I mean? It's that kind of. It's that kind of. I'm better than you. Yeah. And we've just scored. Surely we just should celebrate that. But no, I'm going to stick two fingers up to the opposition as well. But so if English football, it's not just about necessarily what happens on the pitch. We're extending this out to how the fans feel about what they're watching, the product that they're watching, how they consume it. But we should probably address the issue of whether English football has gained what it's gained and lost on the pitch. That's probably quite important. Well, let's uh, turn it back to Mr. Andy Hinchcliffe. Don't ask me. Of course, I've got no answers. So much about this. So, when we talked about your association with the fans during the period of change, yeah. uh, post-1992, what about the tactical innovations about the, the player welfare, and I mean, not just how you're treated in HR fashion, but, <laughs> but how your diet changed, yeah, how yeah, your training yeah. changed. Yeah. What, yeah. How quickly did that change, and, and did it for the better or for the worse? Well, thinking back now, at the time I didn't notice, it's kind of a subtle change, because you don't just suddenly see, well, one season we're doing this, the next season we're doing this, but the, the, the thing I noticed about pre-season training, and as we're uh, discussing this topic, was, was Howard Kendall, 1990, when I was at Everton, first pre-season I ever did, using the ball from day one, using the ball, 1990, and I didn't realise I'd been playing for five or six years before that, so you're thinking, that's a huge change, and then from then on, it never really stopped, any coach that I worked under in terms of tactics, in terms of, of fitness, um, coaches were then working uh, position specific as well, goalkeepers wouldn't do what centre forwards were doing, they used to be, well, you're playing as a fullback, this is how we want you to play, this is how fit you need to be to do the job, so things were, but it's strange, because I never really thought, oh, today, it's a big change from yesterday, it just seemed to be, and that tends to be the way the flow of things, five years later or, or now, you look back and think, wow, that was a huge change from, say, 1990 to 95, I feel, when the Premier League first came in. But it was a lot more foreign players coming in who made you feel differently about the job that you were doing because they seemed to be a lot more professional than we were as well. There was no drinking, not that I smoked, but there was no smoking. The training, they loved coming into training. They got in there early. They stayed out and did extra practice as well. All the traits that the English players really did need were starting to come in and then were taken as, well, th- this is how it should be. But we hadn't been doing them maybe for five years previously, but I hadn't noticed we hadn't been doing them until the coaches came in and all those foreign players started to arrive. So it took that, in terms of a player, changing the way that I did things was really off the back of having different influences in the dressing room. So we can say probably fairly, fairly categorically that English football now encompasses a professionalism that it didn't necessarily have yeah. before. In terms of kind of the style of play, what you were 
the, the stuff you were doing when you when your career ended how yes. different do you think that was well there was the I, I played basically two systems a 4-4-2 where I was brought up for maybe 10 years old playing all the way through to um, even the Glen Hoddle with England the first time I read, or Joe Royal at Everton in mid 90s we started playing kind of three centre halves and playing wing backs so that was the first change to a 4-4-2 I'd ever experienced but it took such a long time for that to happen but now players will be asked to play three or four different mm. um, Pep, Pep Guardiola at Man City the demands on his players are huge how they think about the job that they do how they condition themselves and also tactically they have to be so aware and things maybe would have gone that way you know if you had stayed in the game clearly that would have happened to pretty much everybody it must be happening at all clubs but basically I played two formations one for 15 years and then changes subtle change but again it came off the back of coaches with mm. different thinking and having different players available to play different ways but then did that in so if we accept that it's also got more tactically sophisticated mm. how is it still English what makes it still be English the football that we see in the Premier League well that will uh, beautifully segue onto part three yes which he celebrates well with a double fist to the air thank you very that, much indeed if I'd been a uh, goal scorer which actually I was to be fair <laughs> devastatingly effective that <laughs> was my celebration a, just no, running just off with <laughs> two arms in the air if you had a tartan scarf not, you'd be a fan of the Bay City a, Rollers a Rocky celebration fists yeah. bunched Bay City Rollers <laughs> shang lang too young, too young then I just don't stand in the corner flag and stand like that in front of an imaginary crowd so in part two we have have uh, gone to delved deep into the past or more recent past to ask whether the changes that have happened to English football and football in England we should say uh, are both for the better and for the worse who'd have thought we would be sitting on the fence quite so extraordinarily part three will go from the past to the present and maybe indeed the future as well but we've had one pizza we've got another pizza that Steve has beautifully cut up so we I've not, need no, to delve no, 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 no. all I've done is take it out of the oh, right, okay. we've, not even we've done now got cold pizza and is there not a third pizza. pizza there is a third pizza to be cooked as well so there's so much to be done before we get underway uh, with part three there's a lot for you to do between parts two and three that is of course your homework do subscribe share rate and review we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule a reminder there will be a soccer story at the end of this weighty tome I feel like we're going to be dusty by the end of this as well. Can a podcast be a tome? I'm sure it can't, no. But uh, you can at least know Mm. deep down, safe in your hearts, that there will be a soccer story uh, at the end of our final part. Uh, You can also follow us on Twitter at SetPieceMenu. Email us at SetPieceMenu at gmail.com. Of course, I'm sure you've got both saved very much to your phone. Thanks to Steve, to Rory and Andy, and to you for listening as well. We'll be back with part three of our Set Piece Menu Summer Series for you to enjoy very soon. By that stage, my eye might have fallen out, mm, to be That's fair. Struggling, what's going on? There's, there's it's been really dry for about a week and a half, and it's um, it's irritating me. There are contact lens issues. There are contact lens issues. Need to be dealt with. I'd have laser eye surgery, but I'm terrified of it and don't have enough money to pay for it. <laughs> Just wear yeah. swimming goggles. Stop anything getting in. What constantly wears yeah, swimming yeah, goggles? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Set yeah. a trend. Can you can you have yeah. them magnified so that the glass in the swimming goggles also yeah. works? Yeah. You can get. I'm sure you can get prescription swimming be, goggles. There yeah. must be swimmers. Or can you yeah. just get like a, a, a really hipster pair of uh, of glasses? Dispense with the uh, contacts. All yes. Together. No. So you've got a bit of facial hair. You know. You've got. Uh, you know. I've got been, a full head of hair. Well, you know, obviously, when I when I started out in the media, I was given my media glasses, as we all were. Which everybody has. Um, Some actually have lenses in some don't and I have I have them in my bag with me but I have nothing into which to put my contact lenses a monocle could wear a monocle <laughs> wear a monocle like Lord Charles exactly tremendous that would be wouldn't it are you yeah. making references that only about 10% of the people you know who I mean don't you Lord Charles. Lord Charles. No. You don't know who Lord is Charles he, is. Is he a friend of yours? Does he live next door to our Steve, Dave Jones? help me out. I've absolutely Lord no Charles. talking about Chinch. Well, there we go. I'm just going to leave it. Is That's your homework. The Find B-mail? out this is who or what Lord Charles was. 
Dropping the mic. Dropping the mic.